Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I am your host. And I am excited today to introduce to you all two new members of our team at Peach Pod who are joining us for their first podcast today. Joining us on the podcast today is Kelly Dobso. Kelly, welcome to the podcast. Hi, I'm glad to be here. And also joining us today is Olivia Bauer. Olivia, welcome to the pod. Hey, thanks for having me. So Kelly and Olivia are a part of our uh, new group of interns who are joining the podcast from the University of Georgia this fall. Um, So you'll hear uh, from everybody in this group, hopefully within the next few weeks. And they are joining us for a good show today. On today's show, we are going to recap the Democratic debate that happened on Tuesday night. We had 12 candidates on stage for a debate hosted by CNN and the New York Times, and they talked through all the things that we've heard about in the first three debates, except for one big brand new issue. They talked about impeachment as this was the first debate since House Democrats launched an impeachment inquiry into President Trump. So we're going to recap what happened and talk about where this race stands as we head to the next debate. And as you may remember from uh, our last show, the next debate is going to be in Georgia. And then for our second topic this week, I talked to Jimmy Herndon. He's a candidate for sheriff in Cobb County. And we talked about the 287G immigration program. We talked about some of the other issues going on in criminal justice in Cobb County. Progressives around the country are starting to pay more attention, I think, to local issues and local elections when it comes to criminal justice, because that is really where a lot of this policy is put into place, where a lot of these goals can be achieved is through local officials who come to, whether it's the sheriff's office or the DA's office with a different kind of mindset. Um, so we talked to, to Jimmy Herndon about some of these issues, and you're going to hear that in the second topic on our show. But let's go ahead and dive in here and talk about the debate from Tuesday night. So we had 12 candidates on stage on Tuesday. There's two more than the 10 that we've typically had in these two-night debates that we've had so far. Uh, New on the stage was Tom Steyer, a billionaire who I think has kind of made his name by supporting impeachment. Um, And then returning to the stage after missing the last debate was Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard. um, And that rounded out... uh, that made 12 with with 10 that uh, we've talked about extensively before. The first thing I want to do is just get each of your general reactions, Kelly and Olivia, to what you saw on the debate stage on Tuesday night. What? Let's start with you, Kelly. What was your just like primary takeaway across all the different things that they talked about on Tuesday? Yeah, so um, I think that Medicare for all was a big focal point. Um, there was a lot of clash between that mainly between Warren and Bernie, and then um, some of the people who have other ideas, such as Gopachar and Pete Buttigieg, they were pretty much um, arguing against her pretty well. And then also I think that, of course, the impeachment talks were, that's what they started off with pretty heavily. And then um, they also talked about some abortion laws. Um, I believe Kamala Harris brought that up originally. I think that was a good a good talking point as well. And Olivia, what were your big takeaways from from the debate on Tuesday? Well, unsurprisingly, they started off talking about uh, everyone's opinions on the impeachment process, and they really uh, gave off a unified front of being anti-Trump and supporting Joe Biden. No one really wanted to, you know, side with Trump by criticizing Joe Biden or Hunter Biden's involvement in the Ukrainian gas company that he was a part of. And also, uh, the big thing I took away was that. 
Warren seems to be a clear front runner now. Like uh, in most of the polls, it seems like her and Biden are pretty neck and neck, even though since the impeachment inquiry began, Biden has been turning downward and Warren's been turning upward. It seems pretty clear that she was a threat to most of the other candidates and they were expressing their frustration with her about a, a myriad of ideas, her taxes to pay for the Medicare for all plan, the wealth tax she plans to impose. And uh, just they really were taking some big swings at her to seem to keep from fading in the lower ranks and the candidates. Yeah, so I think Elizabeth Warren is a great place to start with this debate. I think this really was the first debate where she was a target from the other candidates on stage. And there were a lot of swings taken at her. The biggest one was was like y'all mentioned this discussion on Medicare for all and Warren's insistence on refusing to say that a Medicare for all proposal would mean a tax increase for middle middle income families, really for, for everyone across the board, but primarily the, the issue here is for middle income families. She kept falling back on this idea that taxes was only sort of one small piece of the pie and that she wanted to talk about overall costs, that overall costs were going to go down for middle income families and that overall costs were going to go up for the wealthy who she sort of implied were going to be the ones primarily financing her Medicare for all legislation. What did y'all make of that debate sort of diving into the weeds, really, we've seen several of these debates start off with these long back and forth on health care. And really this schism between Sanders and Warren who back Medicare for all, and uh, other candidates who back more moderate positions, positions that come up short of full single payer health care. Kelly, what did you make of that, that whole discussion? Yeah, so I think that, of course, you know, we've heard Warren and Biden um, explain pretty clearly, like, what Medicare for all is, um, especially Bernie, he knows how to talk about it. He's, you know, the one who always says, you know, I created the bill. And so in this debate, particularly, you know, you saw Klobuchar and you saw um, Pete Buttigieg make strong oppositions to Warren's Medicare for all and her in particular, basically because, you know, it seems like every debate they've asked Warren, you know, will taxes increase for the middle class? And she doesn't say yes or no in particular, but she does say, you know, taxes will go up for um, the rich and overall costs for the middle class will go down. And it seems like they just want a yes or no answer. And another point that I got from this particular debate is that, you know, Klobuchar and Pete Buttigieg were really against her and her Medicare for all. But I kind of wanted to hear more of like their alternatives. I want to hear about, you know, your plan you know, might be this, but let's talk about my plan. Let's talk about what I would do instead of Medicare for all. I was kind of looking for, you know, that kind of information as well, because I felt like that was lacking in opposition to Medicare for all. Yeah, Olivia, how do you absorb this conversation on, on health care? I spend a lot of my daytime in the weeds on these issues. But I, what I've sort of struggled with, with these 12 person or these 12 candidate debates, these debates that go on for three hours and that we spend almost 30 minutes on this back and forth on healthcare, really finding it hard as a just as an observer to try to understand where different candidates are on healthcare in a broad way. They're sort of just fighting over these 
really sort of narrow issues on, on taxes and Medicare for all. How do you, what, what did you take away from that healthcare discussion at the beginning of the debate? Yeah, I completely agree with that. And you could definitely see some of the other uh, candidates such as Cory Booker being frustrated with, you know, focusing on the tiny details when we all have the same goals in mind. And I definitely um, picked up on Klobuchar and Buttigieg being really frustrated with Warren, you know, always having her plans and sort of kind of coming off like her plans are the best plans when really, you know, they're all trying to solve the same issues of, you know, health care for underinsured Americans. And I, I do agree um, that I, I would have liked to hear some of their alternative plans to Warren's because they kind of just focused on, you know, there's other things than just, you know, Senator Warren's plans, but they didn't really put those out there in the forefront as much. And um, the other thing I, that really struck me was how Bernie just completely unapologetically was like, yes, we are going to raise taxes but on the middle class, but overall it's going to be savings for everyone because there's not going to be any uh, co-payments and any other sort of uh, health care payments. They're going to be all completely paid for by the government. So even though your taxes are going up, it's overall savings, which is a lot more straightforward and honestly a lot more likable than the way Senator Warren approached the issue, which was just sort of avoiding talking about that at all and just focusing on making it sound completely positive and just not being very straightforward about what the policy actually entails. What is y'all's reaction to, you know, part of what single payer advocates, Medicare for all advocates will say is Medicare for all is a simple policy. It means that everyone who is everyone who is a resident of the United States will get health care coverage and will all pay for it collectively together through taxes. And there are, aren't any of the complicated issues of people having to switch their health care plans, having to switch their, their doctors, their health care providers, all of the other complicated things that go into the way our current private health insurance system works. And both Buttigieg and Klobuchar seem to be really pumping the brakes on this and, and sort of attacking, in some sense, the idealism of the plan. Klobuchar called it a pipe dream. What is y'all's reaction to the moderates pumping the brakes and saying, hold on, you know, this may be some big grand vision, but we've really got to talk about the things that we can actually get done. Do y'all find that to be just like a realistic, a realistic message that Democrats should be discussing? Or is that sort of depressing that the the message here is tamp down your ambition and be realistic? How How do y'all react to that push and pull between an idealistic vision and the more realistic one offered by the moderates? Um, I think it's definitely a strategy for the main election. I mean, you could definitely tell Buttigieg was really pushing himself as the Midwestern moderate, which you can tell um, Klobuchar also has been doing this whole time. But he was really pushing the idea that, you know, in Ohio, like we hear all these grand promises from politicians in Washington, nothing ever really happens, nothing changes in our lives. So I think it's an electability argument, really, that he's saying that people in these swing states they want to hear a politician that's being realistic with them and straightforward with them. And it's not just big ideas that sound good that are going to win. They want to hear um, the details of how it's going to happen in an honest, clear way and not just this grand, it sounds uh, really ideal sort of way, which is how Warren was sort of a, how she was expressing her Medicare for all plan. So let's move on here and talk a little bit about the impeachment discussion that was kind of the first 
10 or 15 minutes of this debate. Um, I was struck by the fact that basically all Democrats were were speaking from the same hymnal on impeachment. They repeated each other's messaging that President Trump was the most corrupt president in the history of the United States. They all are supportive of an impeachment inquiry, and many of them have been on the record supportive of an impeachment inquiry since before the most recent dust-up on uh, the the Ukraine call that President Trump had where he pressured Ukraine to open an investigation into his domestic political rival, Joe Biden. But the place where I where I was really interested in this discussion was how Joe Biden reacted to the question about what his son Hunter Biden did, which to be clear about what he did, he served on the board of a Ukrainian gas company where he took a big salary and he was neither an expert in Ukraine nor an expert in in national uh, natural gas. It was clearly a position that he got via political connections people who wanted to be connected to the Bidens, who wanted to put Hunter Biden in a, in a prominent place in this company. But it's not illegal to do that. So Joe Biden says, look, my son did nothing wrong. I did nothing wrong. When I put some pressure on the Ukrainian government to fire a prosecutor, I was executing the foreign policy of the U.S. government. But what I saw raised after the debate was an article by Ezra Klein in Vox where he argued that Democrats really did did not in this debate and are not confronting the issue about Hunter Biden, which is that it's not something Ill- illegal that he did, but it's something that is sort of unsavory and this sort of legal but frowned upon corruption of high government officials and high business officials and and the the mingling that they do. So how do you what was your reaction to how Joe Biden answered that question? And do you think that Democrats need to confront the issue of this sort of soft corruption at issue with Hunter Biden? Or is it best for Democrats to sort of unite as a team and say, we shouldn't even be talking about this? It's unfair to Joe. Obviously, it's a big part of the current media and the news cycle right now. Um, and I think it definitely is going to stay that way, especially since the impeachment inquiry is progressing as it is. And so I think that almost that, you know, you know that like Trump is going to be talking about it. So there is a conflict of whether the Democrats should just unite or they should break away and they should be like, listen, like this might be unethical, but you know, it's not illegal. Um, and I think that it's interesting that, you know, Joe Biden, you know, said like my son did nothing wrong and I did nothing wrong. Um, and he kind of, switched it around and he was like we should be focusing on the corruption in Ukraine which I think is also an interesting take yeah I thought it was definitely a I thought it was a surprising strategic choice to me to completely just forgo any wrongdoing on his part he just said listen to what my son said like he said it all I'm not gonna acknowledge any wrongdoing you know on this debate stage especially since other candidates such as Elizabeth Warren I know his when she was asked point blank, would this be okay in your administration if someone were to uh, use sort of like, you know, nepotism, corruption to like give their son a job? She said it wouldn't be okay in her administration. So I think that they should be addressing it, but I understand why they're not on this debate stage because I know it would be politically detrimental to not have a united front against Trump and, you know, to sort of attack Biden when all the other candidates are sort of trying to get Biden supporters into their camp as well. So I understand why they didn't, but I think 
that in the long run, it's something that they're going to want to address, especially the candidates that are sort of modeling themselves as anti-corruption candidates as part of their platforms, like, you know, Elizabeth Warren and other candidates, I'm sure. So I think it, it kind of did surprise me that Biden just completely forewent any sort of um, responsibility for that or any sort of wrongdoing, because he, he, I think it was, I know it happens often, but I don't think he should have said it's completely fine, because just because it happens often doesn't mean that it shouldn't change. Yeah, I think the thing, if you're Joe Biden, I think the thing that you're hoping for is that this is the kind of story that really drug down Hillary Clinton's campaign in 2016. It was something that it wasn't, you know, as egregious as some of the things that Trump is said to have done in his administration. But it is something that voters sort of frown upon. It it represents this elite sensibility that Trump was able to key in on about Hillary Clinton and, and be a compelling messenger for why he was different. I think if you're Joe Biden, what you're hoping is the first term of Trump's presidency is in and of itself an example of how Trump is no different than the claims that he levied against Clinton in 2016, and that Joe Biden would hope that Trump can no longer be a credible messenger on fighting corruption, on draining the swamp, on taking on the elites, uh, because he has failed to do that in his first term. I mean, so I think that's one reason for him to say, you know, I did nothing wrong and, and my son can speak for himself. But, you know, it's the kind of story that can drag on, particularly as any of the details remain relevant within this conversation around impeachment. Another issue that was that was key where I think Mayor Pete Buttigieg really stood out to me was this discussion on foreign policy. The latest blow up in the Trump administration is that he abruptly pulled American troops a, a small group of American troops out of harm's way in Syria and basically allowed Turkey to enter northern Syria to attack a group known as the Kurds, who were American allies, who helped the U.S. serve as the on-the-ground forces in fighting ISIS late in the Obama administration. And this is a decision that was abrupt by the Trump administration and has drawn bipartisan scorn on Capitol Hill on two, on Wednesday, the day that we're talking, um, the House of Representatives in a huge bipartisan vote condemned Trump's decision to pull troops out of Syria and basically allow the Kurds to be slaughtered. Pete Buttigieg and Tulsi Gabbard, Congresswoman Gabbard, had, had an interesting exchange on this issue where they were on both sides of the issue of forever wars and American presence in the Middle East, American military presence in the Middle East. Pete Buttigieg and Tulsi Gabbard are both veterans. And so I think they both speak on this issue with some authority. But Pete Buttigieg made a very strong argument in favor of American presence and American support of allies to the point that even if we as a country decide that we do not want to be engaging in a lot of foreign conflicts in the way that we were under the Bush administration. We can't just step back and, and remove ourselves completely. We have to uphold our commitments to our allies. Tulsi Gabbard sort of pointed out that we have fought in these consistent wars in the Middle East, see seeking to change regimes in countries like Syria. 
and that this is just should not be a foreign policy priority of the United States. Um, I know both of you had some thoughts on this exchange. What did you take away from the argument that Pete Buttigieg was making about America's commitment to its foreign alliances? I thought that Pete Buttigieg really impressed me. He came off as very knowledgeable, and I was interested in his response to this because I knew he was a veteran and I also knew he was a mayor, so I didn't expect him to have much foreign policy experience, but he he was talking about how while he like didn't support the war in Iraq and he thought we needed to leave Afghanistan, the troops that were in Syria was only 150 special forces, and it was the only thing that was stopping Turkey from coming in and destroying the Kurds. And it's not an effective method of troop withdrawal, and they're not even leaving Syria and coming home. They're just being relocated in Syria. So he made the argument that it's going to lead to more troops in the long run and a prolonged military effort in Syria. And I thought that it was a really impressive retort to Tulsi Gabbard's argument that there are these endless regime wars in Syria. And she also mentioned Yemen, that um, honestly, it just she didn't seem to understand fully the situation like Pete did. He really just came off as very knowledgeable. And also, I'd say Biden's response to the question about um, Trump's decision to withdraw troops from Syria, he came off as very experienced. He talked about his experiences talking to Putin and Erdogan. So I thought this was really a question that he particularly shined on compared to all the rest of the candidates on stage. Yeah, I agree with that as well. Um, This has been a topic that's been in the news the past week or so, and it's been something that I've been following a lot. In particular, you know, Gabbard said that you know, the troop, our troops should get out of Syria. And, you know, our, our troops have been acting as like kind of like a buffer between um, Turkey, who really does not like the Kurds um, for various reasons. And so pulling our troops out of Syria and also letting Erdogan do what he wants and to um, invade Syria really just betrays our Kurd, the Kurds who are, um, who were our allies. And so the Kurds are basically the ones who fought against ISIS and really prevented and stopped the spread of ISIS within the Syrian region. And so I know that a lot of, you know, the Kurds, the Kurdish soldiers, they still had a bunch of ISIS fighters that were they were holding. And so I've seen like, I think the most recent number is that 700 ISIS fighters got, um, they fled because of these invasions. And I think that just poses a massive national security risk and international security risk, um, considering that ISIS you know, was very heavily suppressed in the recent years due to the United States and the Kurds teaming up against ISIS as well. So I think Pete really hit the nail, hit the head on the nail for, um, you know, the situation in Syria. So what were some of your assessments of some of the other candidates who were who were ones you thought did particularly well or, or particularly bad? So I think that Andrew Yang had a really good night. You know, he he kind of stepped back. He let, you know, like we said before, Warren, Klobuchar, and Pete Buttigieg kind of fight it out. And then also Beto, you know, had some some hits here and there. Um, but I think Andrew Yang just kind of let everybody else um, argue with each other. And he was he just stuck to, you know, his policies on universal basic income. And he made some good points, especially about um, the criminal justice system and reform that could be happening um, across the country under his presidency. The thing that he said that really that I really liked was that with drug problems, you know, 
we should be emphasizing treatment for drug addiction over receiving jail time because people are just going to go out of go into jail. They're going to lose their jobs. They're going to come back out and then they're going to fall back into the addiction process again. And it's just a very large cycle. And I think that he was very impressive with his knowledge of that. And um, I think that he also made a good point. You know, his whole campaign is basically run on universal basic income. Um, and he basically said that, you know, UBI is essential because of, you know, the threats to automation jobs throughout the country. And we're seeing, you know, job loss because of it. And also because of job closures due to Amazon, you know, being the force that it is and um, as accessible as it is. Well, uh, one moment that stood out to me in particular was Biden's attack on Warren's Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. He basically insinuated that it, that whole bureau that Warren had been championing after the 2007 recession, he had gone in and gotten all the support for that to be created. And he just came off as very pointed and condescending as if he had done all the work for that. And Warren, her response just came off as very composed and very quick-witted. She just said, I'd like to thank Obama for his support in getting this bureau off the ground. And I felt like it really just showcased her debate skills and her skills in rhetoric and staying composed. And it just made me think about what a debate between Warren and Trump would look like versus a debate between Biden and Trump, because he just came off as very, uh, you know, on the attack. He was very angry and negative. And so I felt like between the two of them, Warren was definitely on top for that. And Biden kind of was more of a loser in the debate. And Warren also, she just treated like a front runner the entire time. You know, she was being attacked by the different um, moderate candidates who have not been polling as well. And I felt like she just managed to come out on top after every single attack. And I was impressed by her. And I was also impressed by Bernie Sanders. I'm just sort of talking about the front runners right now, but he was coming back off of a week of not being uh, actively campaigning because of his health issues. And there was some concerns about that, uh, which sort of were already relevant because of his age, but after the heart attack, people were worried about him. And he just seemed very lively. He was funny. He was himself and he was still extremely likable. And all of his answers were very clear and he was well-spoken. And I just, I thought he did great. I'd also like to add, you know, I think Castro did a really great job last night as well. Um, you know, there was a question about if like packing the Supreme Court and adding more seats to it is, you know, justifiable. Um, and I think he had a really good answer to it. He said he was against, you know, packing the Supreme Court and adding more seats to it. And instead of that, he said that maybe there should be term limits um, or, you know, you should rotate people out. And I also there was an odd question at the end. It was, you know, um, about the George Bush and Ellen video. And I thought that was an odd question to have, but I think he had a really great answer to it. It was basically like, you know, can we be kind to, you know, people that we don't necessarily agree with on like political basis. And um, he had a great answer. It was basically saying, you know, we should be kind to people. But there's also a point where, you know, if you're a public servant, that you should be held accountable for your actions. And I thought that was a pretty good, like end note as well to the debate as well. All right. Well, I think that is a good point to end on and, and move on to our second topic this week, 
we are going to be keeping an eye on this race as it moves forward. As we mentioned, that next debate is going to be in Atlanta, and it's going to be really interesting to see how the polls respond to candidate performance in these debates. And if there are fewer candidates on stage in starting in the next debate in Atlanta, but we're we're getting closer to Iowa um, and the real winnowing that's going to happen to maybe five or six candidates, hopefully not much more than that, because I'm tired of listening to all 12 of them. So with that, we are going to move on to our second topic. But Kelly and Olivia, thanks for joining the podcast and talking about your reactions to the debate. Thanks for having me. Thank you. All right. So I'm now joined by Jimmy Herndon. He is a candidate for sheriff in Cobb County. Uh, Jimmy, welcome to the podcast. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me. So for our listeners who may not be from Cobb County or who may not be familiar with you, could you just describe a little bit about your background and and what has led you uh, to run for sheriff in Cobb County? Sure. Uh, My name's Jimmy Herndon. I'm running as a Democrat for Cobb County Sheriff. I grew up in the Valdosta area and Valdosta and, uh, I don't know, I was about 13 or 14, I moved to Clinch County, Georgia, which to tell people where that's at, it's on the Florida border. It's about two over from the Little Dip in Georgia, kind of borders the Okefenokee Swamp. So I went from living in a city to kind of living out in the middle of nowhere. I lived like eight miles from the closest like high school, the only high school we had. I lived with my grandparents growing up primarily. Um, my grandfather was a honey producer. One time he had about 4,000 hives. So that was my growing up experience. I learned how to work in bee yards, and that's some pretty tough, uh, long work. It's kind of like a farming work. You kind of run it with the when the sun goes up and down, and that's how you kind of do. I moved here to Cobb County in 2001, again, working for the Cobb County Sheriff's Office. Prior to that, I had um, got my undergraduate in criminal justice uh, from Boston State University. Then I got a master's degree in uh criminology from Valdosta State University. And then uh, several years later, I went back because I, I realized I was like, hey, I can take a few more classes here and there. It take me a couple of years and I get another master's degree without a whole lot of rigmarole. So I did that and I got a second master's degree in public administration. So I figured the line of work I was in, that would definitely help me prepare me for future leadership roles one day. Began working for the Cobb Sheriff's Office, did like everybody else, a typical career. I started off at the jail from there, I went to courts, uh, court security, protecting judges, doing all that fun stuff. A lot of behind the scenes, all the comings and goings of prisoners, a lot, a lot of the stuff that they don't kind of cover on television that makes the system work. From there, I went to field operations, was a regular uniform deputy, serving warrants, civil papers, doing evictions, mental health transports, general law enforcement work. And then I was made a um, investigator, detective, whatever you want to call them, sheriff's office, they call them investigators, and I was put into the fugitive unit. That's where you work undercover and you hunt um, really bad men, murder, rape, armed robbery, those type of crimes that land on your desk that uh, are violent in nature, or they have gotten away multiple times from other police agencies, so you hunt them down. So in Georgia, sheriff's office jurisdiction doesn't stop at the county line like it does. Like Police have confined areas that are limited to as long as I stay within the confines of the state of Georgia, I can go wherever I want. So if I had a murder um, flee to even Atlanta, Savannah, Albany, anywhere in the state, um, me and my crew in the fugitive unit, we could go um, track them and get them. And there's lots of different ways we track people, but we would track them down and we would you know, arrest them and then bring them back to Cobb County for prosecution. Um, also, were cases where 
Plus, some of them where you'll find people, and they may be in New York or Indianapolis or somewhere, and you engage and give all your information to local agencies that kind of do what you do, also your counterparts in other places, and they will in turn track down the person for you and hand them off. You make arrangements to bring them back. I've brought people back as far away as uh, Italy. Um, I've had one in Northern Africa. I've brought back just different crimes, and they'll try to run and hide. And some of them were gone for several years before we finally they slip up. And we catch them and bring them back. I really enjoyed that work. And uh, when I had children, I decided those hours of up and down, back and forth, constantly running and going day and night was uh, not ideal for family life. And I requested and I got transferred to the fraud unit. I worked in a fraud unit for several years, um, supervised it a little bit before I got moved over to a crime scene. Um, during my tenure there at the fraud unit, I worked lots of big cases. I had the uh, Largest indictment in Georgia history, over 3,000 count indictment, 1,800 victims, millions of dollars in tax fraud. It's a very interesting case. It took me about a year to bring it to conclusion. Uh, it was a tough case, but it's worth it. I learned a lot. And uh, otherwise, these people would have gotten away with it because it was just a, it were very organized crime. <laughs> and it was fun to work. I got to use my brain, do that kind of stuff I enjoyed. Like I said, after that, I got moved, uh, supervised the jail for just a couple of months, and then I got put over the crime scene unit. I worked the crime scene unit the last few years I was there. Um, I also had to work um, warrants on the southern side of Cobb County and general supervision as a general you know, sergeant, supervising people in the road, doing all that kind of stuff. Um, part of why I decided to come to like, run for sheriff. The last couple of years I was there, the longer I worked for the sheriff's office, the more I became disillusioned with the way it was being run. I was hired by Sheriff Hudson, not Warren. I just kind of inherited him. He inherited me as well. Um, my direct supervisor at the time when I was running crime scene got arrested for a DUI. Then I had to report to his supervisor, who in turn got arrested for a felony out in another county. So I had to take on their workloads and my own in three different divisions. And I was like, this is kind of, this is crazy. And we just, the sheriff just created new jobs for these people that didn't exist beforehand. Instead of disciplining them or firing them, these are things that you couldn't keep your job at Walmart or McDonald's if you did them. But yet we're a public taxpayer, you know, agency, funded agency. And we have people doing these kinds of things and they're, they're still employed. And as I went to looking around, I mean, there's, like I was just very quickly looking and I was like, there's a dozen of them here. There's more than a dozen of them here right now that have prior arrests and are just running around. This is terrible. And it's increasing the workload for the ones of us that do the right thing. And I didn't like the way that the jail was run. Um, you look at the jail, you, you now, the jail's in a crisis situation right now as we speak. There's going to be a, actually, this Friday we're doing a podcast. There'll be a protest out there today by a lot of people. I'm not able to attend that, but there's a lot of them going out there. The jail's been on lockdown for a month straight. Um, the staffing levels out there are so critical that my opponent is called in the SWAT team not to do SWAT stuff, but to just work regular line positions. You have deputies working alone, supervising two, three, sometimes 400 inmates alone. In the past 10 days or so, we've had four of our deputies sent to the emergency room with head injuries, stitches, you name it. Um, one was choked nearly unconscious from behind by an inmate when he was attacked again while working alone. And I went to look at this stuff. And I was like, why is all this happening? And so, you know, I pulled Warren's background and looks and found he was just hired directly as a sergeant way back when and spent his entire career behind a desk. I don't see where he ever worked the jail. And I looked and he doesn't even have jailer certification. 
So one of the primary functions of the sheriff in Georgia is to run the jail. And it makes me wonder how can you effectively run a jail when you've never worked in it and you don't you don't know how it works and what to do. It's like if I suddenly got appointed the CEO of Pepsi, for example, my experience with that is simply what other people have told me in drinking Pepsi. I wouldn't know how to run the company because I've never done that work. And that's kind of what we're finding ourselves in now. Warren says he's got 42 years of experience, but yet I have way more training than he does. Just bothers me. And 42 years, he could have never got the certification to work in the jail, which, by the way, for a sworn officer, it's one week. That's all that's required to just get the basic certification on your record. And I just I think we could do a lot better. We've had four deaths out there, inmate deaths since December. Um, I don't know if you followed any of these in the news. The last one, um, he died. The last two died in a padded room, soundproof room. It has no toilet, no running water, no bed, no nothing. You just lay on the floor in that room. And the last two men died in there. This last one, they're still waiting on me. I've spoken with the family. They've told me what happened, but I'll let them discuss what happened on that, um, whatever medical issues he had. But the one before died of dehydration. It really bothers me. If I lock you in a cell and I leave you there, when you take a person into custody, they actually become quite helpless. They can't do anything without your say-so. They can't eat. They can't go to the bathroom. They can't shower. They can't get dressed. They can't do anything without your say-so. Well, this man, for whatever reason, was put in this padded room, supposed to be for like very violent people to separate them out until they calm down. It's not supposed to be used for some type of permanent housing, especially when it doesn't even have a toilet or running water in it. Well, this man died of dehydration. So just not even just my crime scene experience, but if you look at it just from common sense wise, if I lock you in a room where you have no access to water, food, you can't call for help, you can't do anything, and you die of dehydration, then it would have been me that killed you if I control your movements. But yet the sheriff always investigates himself and clears himself of any wrongdoing. I'm sorry, when you look at this, there's got to be a better way of doing this. It's just that's a person that's, he might not have a family that can speak for him, but as a civilized society, we've got to treat people better when you take them into custody. You got to remember a jail is a pre-trial detainee facility. That means these people have not been convicted. They're not sentenced to prison. They're just waiting to go to trial. The vast majority of them can't get out because of their bond. They either can't pay it or they don't have one. So let's actually start there because I'm I'm interested to learn more about um, the conditions in, in jail and, and what you think is necessary to sort of turn this around. So what, in your view, having followed this issue and having been involved in so many different aspects of, of the criminal justice system in different places in your career, what really needs to happen to improve the conditions of, of treatment for people in custody? Is this Are these like nuts and bolts policies that need to change? Is it a culture shift among the people who, who work there? In your view, how do you sort of approach this problem? It's it's both. There's a, there's a bad culture there. There's a, just the way the employees are treated and the way you have to behave to move up and around in there is not the way you would you, you would want any organization run. Part of it is uh, the sheriff, he probably doesn't know because he's never worked in the jail. And it looks like from the outside that he doesn't particularly care because he gets paid no matter what he does. There's very little that can be done in Georgia to remove a sheriff other than the governor. It's a very formal thing. So he would have to just go completely bonkers for the governor to remove. Otherwise, the only time you're held accountable is in election every four years. But this sheriff got rid of detention officers for some reason. 
and converted them all to deputy positions. Well, the problem is when you hire somebody as a deputy sheriff, just like me, I got hired. And I was told, hey, man, you'll work in the jail a short period of time and then you'll be out. That actually happened for me. I'm one of the probably 5% or so that that happens for. But the majority of people that get hired, they have no intention of ever moving out of the jail. They just leave them there. So you've got someone that you paid and trained and sent to the police academy, taught to drive cars, shoot guns. You give them uniform vests, all this stuff. And you have no intention of ever letting them use it. You just keep them at the jail working as a detention officer, though they're a deputy. I don't know if it's so the sheriff could increase his budget or say he's got more deputies on staff or what the deal is. But deputies quickly become disillusioned with that environment. It's a very rough environment to work in. Twelve and a half hours a day, three to four days uh, a week. And now deputies are having to work four and five days forced overtime each month. You don't fire. uh, You don't show up. They'll fire you, discipline you, whatever. So. That needed time off they're not getting anymore. Either they're forcing them to work overtime, which in turn causes the money to go to the roof that's being spent out there. I think you need detention officers, people that literally sign up for this work, just like you have correction officers. They sign up for the work. You can put more bodies on the floor for the same amount of money you're spending on deputies now, a lot more bodies because detention officers, because you don't have to sink all that cost into them and pay them to do all these extra things and certifications they have to have. You would end up with more on the floor working because they cost less. They know this is what they're going to do. And the basic training for them is six weeks to the state or two weeks to the state to get the initial certification. And then you do in-house training for eight to 10 weeks to make sure they really got down what they're doing. Unlike a deputy that might take you six months to turn out a finished product. Um, it's just, I think that's part of the problem. The sheriff and a lot of his command have never put in the time and worked out there and know what's going on. So, they're making decisions based off of, I don't know what, if other people term what, but you can't substitute firsthand experience for working the jail. You just, just like having it on lockdown for a month straight, like he's done now. Anybody's working in a jail know that that's, that's horrible. You don't do that. He's turned the place into a pressure cooker. When those inmates do finally get let out, and it'll probably be through lawsuits and stuff that we'll have to pay for you can't just arbitrarily lock a jail down because you're short-staffed. That's that's You can't just punish people in that manner. Um, they're going to riot. They'll never want to lock down again. So these deputies are getting attacked like this, and it's usually when one inmate at a time's out. What's going to happen when we release three and 400 out of, at once again? It's just going to be bad for our staff. The staff's burnout. They're constantly contacting me, talking about how bad the conditions are out there and how they're working one deputy per several hundred inmates. And when you lock them down, it quadruples the work easily of a deputy. I remember when we had it happen. How you're supposed to do is if you have a violent incident in a pod, you, you're supposed to only lock down to to restore order. And as soon as you've maintained and you're restored order, you kind of tell the inmates, hey, man, this is what's going on. You've got to have everybody on the, you know, following the rules. And then you let them go. You let them back out. But this arbitrarily locking them down for a month straight because you're short staffed, it's absurd. It's not legal. It's going to get the whole county in, in a whole bunch of federal lawsuits, I'm sure. So let's talk a little bit. Let's shift a little bit and talk a little bit about 287G. So 287G is this program which deputizes local law enforcement to do the job of enforcing federal immigration laws. And I am almost certain that you probably know more about it than I do. But can you tell me a little bit about your views of this program? And specifically, what impact does this program have on the ability of local law enforcement to do their jobs and and maintain a, a good relationship with the community? Uh, at my website, that's at Hernan for Sheriff. I go over this pretty extensively. My, my 
problem with the 287G program. So 287G, basically, when an inmate gets brought to jail, they ask them, are you foreign-born and what country are you for? And they say they do it so they can, like, notify your consulate. But if a lot of these inmates just maintain their Fifth Amendment right to remain silent when they went in and not said where they were from, they wouldn't end up being detained by us. But that's a whole other issue there. Um, basically, the sheriff's office has um, several deputies. Sheriff Warren won't disclose how many or how much it costs, but I can guesstimate based off of the salaries and stuff. Um, they assign them to the ICE program, and they're not allowed to work anywhere else. They only work the ICE program. They go to a training course put on by the federal government. And they deputize them for the sole purpose of only enforcing immigration law and putting a hold for ICE for them to come in later and review the cases. So uh, in my view, we already pay federal taxes for ICE to do this job, and they're asking us to do it. And uh, they don't reimburse us for the costs we put into it. We pay for the office space. We pay for the computers. We pay for the staff salary benefits, the whole nine yards. And that is all they're allowed to work. And we're talking about this again, working in an environment where I need deputies on the floor, need them working for safety of the inmates and the staff. And here we are tying up eight to 10 deputies doing this mess. The uh, other problem I have with it is that I don't like when, every time I arrest somebody, anybody in the state of Georgia, there's a judicial review, even if it's a citation or a warrant, there's judicial review. A judge will look at my work and say, hey, Yes, you can charge the person with this, or no, you cannot, or yes, you can put a hold on them, or no, you cannot. A judge, a person that society puts in place to review and go over these things, goes over all of this, and they decide, well, with 287G or immigration officer, you're asking for that deputy to put a hold on people without any judicial review whatsoever. Um, they just arbitrarily put a hold on them. It could be the right person. could be wrong. We don't know. You don't have another person reviewing it. It's just simply that one person's word, then in there, boom, a whole place. Um, as you know, the probably know the Fourth Amendment guarantees your right to, you know, unlawful search and seizure. It requires you to have a warrant or a court order to put a person in jail. That is afforded to everyone except this very select group. And as you know, the Constitution applies to anybody standing on our soil. So no judicial review, no nothing. They're just a hold put on. I mean, that's one of the rights we fought for with the British. We actually had British, you go back a long time ago, customs officers before the Revolutionary War. They used to detain people in, in a similar fashion, tax them, take away their things, do all this kind of stuff. And it's kind of like what we're doing now, but we're only doing it for a very specific group of people. Um, and these are people that simply say they're foreign born. They're not necessarily even saying they're here illegally or anything. They're just saying they're foreign-born and automatically get detained and put over through the system. I don't like it because I think if you're going to hold somebody in custody, especially since everybody seems to like to toss the word the word illegal around, well, illegal implies you committed a crime. If you committed a crime and you're in jail, take a warrant. Get a court order. Run it by a judge. If a judge says you need to stay there and you're charged with a crime, let's do it. I would have no problem if someone's charged with an actual crime and has an actual warrant being turned over to whatever agency is putting that hold. That's the way it's done everywhere else. So if I arrest someone and bring them to jail and say they're wanted from New York, New York would have a warrant out for them. I would tell New York, hey, I picked this person up. They would say, we will extradite them. Or, so please place a hold for us. And at that time, when they've completed their sentence in Cobb County, then New York would come get them and go there. But the way it is now, they don't do that and it costs us about 75 dollars a day from what i can gather to keep an inmate in jail again we don't get reimbursed for those things 
Um, when I tried to ask the sheriff's office, they said you need to ask ICE. When I asked ICE, they said you need to ask the sheriff's office. And it's this nice loop of misinformation and no information where they just keep saying one person has the other. You never can get an estimate of how much this stuff costs. But that's one of my biggest problems is it doesn't require judicial review and you don't get a warrant. Before we had the ICE program in Cobb County, if someone was committing a crime here unlawfully in violation of a criminal statute, then ICE would place a warrant on them and they would transfer out. This just seems to be kind of a lazy way of doing things. You just don't want to go before a judge. And why is that? This bothers me. Why this one select group of people are the only ones in our entire criminal justice system that you want to skip the Fourth Amendment for? I think it's dangerous because if you can do it to this group, you can eventually do it to another group for different reasons. And we like to think, oh, that'll never happen. But you see lawmakers sometimes do some wild stuff over time. So I just, again, I think it's a waste of money. We don't have the manpower. We already pay taxes. We already pay ICE to do these services. If the person's really uh, here with the term illegal and they've committed a crime, then they need to go take a warrant. But for whatever reason, they don't want to do that. I don't know if it's they're shorthanded, they're lazy, or they're afraid a judge would review it and say, no, man, you can't have a warrant for this. Not sure exactly why, just... I think everything should be done through a warrant with a court order like it is for every single other inmate inside that jail. There's been an unprecedented scrutiny on officer-involved shootings in recent years as more have been caught on camera, and there has been evidence that has contradicted some of the reports in some instances about what has happened in these situations. How have you absorbed the news of each of these events, and does it impact, the, does it impact your approach to the job of sheriff if you're ultimately elected? Yes. So a lot of times, um, and these, well, always in this situation, at least with Neil Warren, um, when we have like in-custody deaths, for example, he won't call out the GBI. He sends a fraud or a fugitive investigator to investigate the death. They're not qualified in any way to investigate a death. They have no training to investigate a death. It's not what they do. They're not homicide detectives. Um, so Warren always investigates himself and clears it. I think there's a unit we have for that. It's called the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, the GBI. Anytime you have an in-custody death or shooting, you should call in the GBI. They're independent investigative unit that's going to write it up as to what happened, what they find. Not politically what's savvy or what the public wants or what the law enforcement officer wants. They come in from an objective standpoint and they just they do it because they work for the state. They don't work for any particular agencies um, and they come in and do it. I think that's how it should always be done because the public – my view doesn't want to ever hear, hey, uh, we investigated ourselves and we found that we're, we're good. We didn't do anything wrong. <laughs> Even if that's the case, that's not what people want to hear. That doesn't make people feel good. We have these different layers of government for a reason with checks and balances. And I think the GBI is an excellent check, check and balance to come in on things like that to happen. Some of the problems you get into, like the logistics of how, I mean, it used to get complicated. I mean, when I ran crime scene how the human brain works your video recording can show one thing but in the heat of the moment on both sides with adrenaline pumping fear aggression all kinds of things you get tunnel vision you don't see everything you don't know everything that's happened your perception of the event is flawed it's kind of like one of the reasons if you look at eyewitness testimony it's some of the worst testimony there actually is when i was a fraud investigator i tried not to make a lot of cases using eyewitness testimony i wanted to use other types because you get people identifying people that weren't there didn't do the crime a lot of it has to do with their emotions and how they were in the moment 
and kind of how memory works. So it works weird. So the camera, obviously, it's going to pick up things most of the time better. Sometimes it doesn't. Um, you'll see stuff where, um, I know one thing, like I wore a body cam where mine was at on my chest. It was right in the center. Um, when I did draw my firearm, all you could see was the back of my hands. You could no longer see anything because I worked, I mean, I served tons of warrants. So, but you couldn't see anything but the back of my hands. Um, so that doesn't really help anybody because you can't, all you're hearing is what I'm saying and words being said. You can't see anything. You just kind of hear stuff. And from there, people's imaginations run kind of wild. So there's drawbacks to cameras um, because people expect them to pick up everything and they don't. So I think you have to take into account of everybody that was there, everything that happened. And most importantly, what the physical, I mean, I'm a big physical evidence guy being from crime scene background, what it says. Because a lot of times what people think they've seen versus what actually happened are quite different. Your platform says that you'll work with lawmakers and community leaders to ensure that the sheriff's office is continuing to work towards ending mass incarceration. What are some of the tools at your disposal there? And does cash bail come into play uh, from the perspective of the sheriff's office? I think some of the stuff with cash bail, you can talk with uh, the DA's office, the judges that put these things in place, especially the magistrate, usually the first person that sees them. On violent crimes, big felonies, the Superior Court assists the bond, actually. But I, I think a lot of that, if you talk with them and said, hey, I, I think bond, bail, whatever you want to call it in this country, has gotten a little, a little out of hand. If you're a millionaire and you commit a certain crime, your bond's $5,000. And if you work part-time at the Dairy Queen, your bond's $5,000. Well, those aren't equal in terms of society. That $5,000 bond for the part-time single mom at Dairy Queen, regardless of what she did, didn't do, is likely to keep her incarcerated for a long time. She may not get out until her case is complete. Then you run into stuff where people plead to crimes that they haven't necessarily completely done or whatever because they just need to get out of jail. Um, and where the millionaire pays a $5,000 bond, it's nothing. It's just a, a minor inconvenience. Um, I think bond should be staged off of your ability to, not just not just arbitrarily. It's just fine for everything because that's, I mean, even tax brackets, we don't treat that way. We treat people according to how much they make, how much their ability to pay, all this stuff. I think they should be able to do that with a bail and, and bond. Um, the sheriff has their disposal. We've got work release programs and stuff, but the work release, because the sheriff sets the standards too high and doesn't let anybody enter the work release program. So now he's using that work release building to use as a field operations like headquarters. So that's where the deputies kind of meet and they took over the areas. And last I checked from what people are telling me is that 95% of the beds in the work release facility are empty. Why not figure out a way to actually get more people in that? Because in the work release facility, depending on the way the judge runs a sentence with the sheriff cooperating, you can have people go to work during the day, still take care of their families, still pay their fines, still hold on to their homes, apartments, whatever they've got, and they just sleep there at night. Um, or they do the weekend jails for a long time until they get their situation re resolved. But, I mean, if you look at it, the vast majority of people in jail aren't violent offenders. Those are the people I think we need to keep in the jail. Sex offenders, violent offenders, those need to stay. But stuff like individual drug users, stuff like that, is it, uh, is it really benefiting society? especially Cobb, it's $75 a day to hold somebody in there because they got caught with some marijuana or personal use of whatever. I, I just, I, I don't see where it 
it, it helps us as a society to move on when you're holding them there for that long. Because at that point, yeah. you've taken away their jobs if they had one. You've taken away their place to live. And they get out, they're homeless. I mean, it's a lot of stuff people don't take into account when you do this. You hear all this, let's just lock them up, lock them up, lock them up. Well, I think if you're doing your job, trying to reduce crime and stuff, filling the jail full of bodies, that's easy to go out here and get what I call low-hanging fruit, low-level offenders, and just keep packing them into the jail. That may give some people in the public perception that you're you're doing your job and you're hard on crime but i mean your whole job is to i mean to get these people turned around and put back out there so they can function again not to lock everybody up permanently i just think there's got to be a better way of doing that and getting with the judges the district attorney especially the magistrate court before we set this these bonds the way we do and get them in jail would really would really help I mean, if we could have 200 people locked up in that jail rather than 2,000, I would be all for that. Not letting everybody go, but violent people, sex offenders, people really hurting people in society, they need to go there. But people that are, you know, like I said, personal drug use, that kind of stuff, it has to be dealt with. But do they need to be locked up for a year for it? I I don't think so. I don't see where that kind of I don't see where that helps us. So as we come to the end here, I know these issues are a lot bigger than one single conversation, and, and we've touched on a few today, but are there any other issues that you want to touch on before we go? Um, not not really, not this time. I mean, it's kind of I kind of covered it. I just think Cobb County needs to change. You've got the sheriff in there. He's worked for that agency for 42 years. I don't really understand the way he's running the place now. Um, they're real hard on some people, and you see he's got multiple lawsuits against him. But then you've got claims he's after the criminal element especially 287g but yeah your employee you know a couple i mean you've got a, north of a dozen people working there now that are out on bond or have been arrested it just keeps it quiet and creates new jobs for them it seems to be um kind of a hypocrite in that aspect i just think the jail can be run better get somebody in there that's actually worked that jail and knows how to run the jail and connect with the deputies and get them what they need i mean they're, they're desperate with for help just covering those things, I, I just think the sheriff could be a lot more in the community. You vote for this person, you put them in office, and right now this person cuts themselves off from the community and it's kind of a us versus them mentality, and it shouldn't be that way. You should be open, community, be out there. People should be able to see you, talk to you if they want to, take meetings with the public. This guy refuses, and I had another organization contact me the other day and said, hey, we've reached out to him for the past eight years trying to get a meeting. This is a civil rights group and just a meeting, just a talk. And he's never taken a meeting with any civil rights group. Never is what they're telling me. And that's bad. I mean, these people vote for you. You shouldn't be so disconnected and afraid from the people that you serve that you should try to hide from them. I just think the sheriff should be out there a lot more, should be visible in the community and helping the community, not just putting people in jail. They shouldn't view that uniform every time they see it as a bad guy. All right. Well, Jimmy Herndon is a candidate for sheriff in Cobb County. Jimmy, if people want to learn more about your platform or your campaign, how could they do that? You can find us on the web at herndonforsheriff.com and on Facebook. Just type in the keywords Herndon for Sheriff and you will find us there as well. All righty. Well, Jimmy, thanks so much for joining the podcast today. All right. Thanks, sir. That's our show for the week. If you like what you heard, share the show with a friend and go over to iTunes and give us a rating or a review. It really helps other people find our show. We'll be back with another episode of Peach Pod next week. Until then, take care, y'all.